Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. Turn your Bibles open to uh, Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to look at several verses from Hebrews chapter 5 all the way through uh, chapter 6, verse 3. And we're starting a brand new sermon series today called Inventory. Uh, I don't know how many of you know what taking inventory means, but in, in the business context, if you ever run a business, if you're e-commerce, it, it literally just means to look at how much stock that you have of the product that you're selling. So that if you have too much, then you're probably going to not make as much because you don't want to waste money on materials and, and tie up all your cash into inventory. But if you don't have enough, then you need to make more so that you can actually sell to the customers who are demanding it. And... And it's not just, a, it's not just a, a business concept. A lot of people take inventory of our personal lives. Like, I don't know how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you do cleaning once in a while of your apartment or your, your room? I mean, I don't, I, I don't think you're like intentionally trying to take inventory in that moment. But lo and behold, as you're cleaning, you're like, what is this thing that I found? I totally didn't know I had this oh, I shouldn't have bought that other thing that I just bought because now it's duplicate. And, and once in a while, we need to take an inventory to know where we're at, what we have, and what decisions we ought to make for the future. And I will say it's not just for material things, whether you're a business or whether you are cleaning out your closet. It's also for our personal lives. Once in a while, every season, and I think this is really helpful and healthy, within uh, changes or transitions in season, that's why we're doing it right now in this season, is to take an inventory personally of your personal life. Where are you at? How have you grown? What have you learned? What has God been depositing in you? What relationships do you have? How have you invested in different things? What has God brought you to? What journey has he brought you through so that you can see how he's grown you? That's what we really want to be able to talk about as we're in this season, right before life groups start, into this next season to say, how have we grown? How have we matured? What has God done? So that as we're taking steps into the future, we can make healthy decisions for God and for his kingdom as we move forward. We're going to do a three-part series. Starting today, we're going to talk about three things. We're going to take inventory of three different areas of our lives. The first area that we're going to talk about today is growth inventory. It's all going to be about our maturity. What does it mean to mature in Christ, what has God done in this past year? How has he helped us to grow so that we can look into the future and say, maybe there's an area of, of, of our character, of our lives that he wants to continue to grow in. Or maybe there's a different area that he wants us to grow in. We've got to take inventory of our growth. The second thing that we're going to talk about next week is our generosity inventory. God has given us a lot of things. And man, I've been blessed by our church. When we gave out that uh, call out for the benevolence fund, praise the Lord, that he encouraged many of you to give faithfully, and we were able to meet the need of several people who were in the dire need in that moment. Can we praise the Lord for that? God is good, and he's raising up generous people in our church, so thank you, those of you who gave, and many of you are continuing to give, but we want to take a look at what resources do we, and it's not simply finances. It's also of our time. It's our talents. Like, how are we being generous? Because we want to be a, a people that is generous because of who God is, because God is a generous God. 
And then the third part that we're going to talk about is our grit inventory, all right? You're like, what is a grit inventory? Grit inventory is this idea of what kind of habits have you been building? What is going to help you to be tenacious to persevere into this next season? How many of you get a feeling that this next season is going to be hard? <clears throat> Some of you are like, oh, don't say it like that, Pastor Bo. You're going to jinx it. We're going to get karma. What, what are you talking about karma, all right? We're not that kind of church. So growth inventory, generosity inventory, and grit inventory. So that's the next three weeks that we're going to look at this series on inventory. And as we start and we talk about growth inventory, <clears throat> this has been something that, like, as a child, uh, I've, like, always been obsessed with growth. I've always wanted to grow. And, like, being tall was, like, one of my, like, if you asked me, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'd be, like, tall. <laughs> wasn't, like, a career vocation. I just want to be tall. And I have a, a younger brother who's four years younger than me. We'd always, always compete. And I'd be like, how can you compete with me, right? I'm four years your senior, and you are, like, in every way, smarter than you, stronger than you, more experienced than you. Like, and I'm not trying to be proud, right? But it's true, right? I'm four years older, and there's no way that he can compete with me in anything. But we would still try to compete in everything. And one of the things that he would always try to compete with me is height. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. How can you compete with someone who's four years older than you in height? But yet we still did. And uh, back then, I was a little bit shorter than I am now, obviously, and a little bit rounder. Uh, but I, was, I really wanted to grow in, in height. So this is a photo of when I was younger. So like, I was a little bit chubby. <clears throat> My wife said I have the same features, right? Uh, same big lips, uh, same high cheekbones, and then she was like, today, she was like, are you going to show that photo? Are you sure? She was like, your ears are the same size today as it was in that photo. Everything else is smaller, but that was me, and I was like super excited. I was like, I want to grow, I want to grow, and I grow, and I try to sleep, and, and I don't know how many of you do this at your home. I, I think this is more of like a Asian parent culture type of thing, is you and your siblings, every couple months or every year, you have a wall at your home where you go, you stand behind the wall and your parents will put like a book or something like that and they will mark down like the date and how tall you were. And every single time you go up to the wall, you're like so excited, like, oh, I can't wait to see how tall I've grown. And, and here's my wall. Um, I, uh, I asked my parents to take this photo for me because, you know, my home is where my parents were in, in the States. And you can't see all, it's too fuzzy, you can't see all the dates, but uh, this back here is like 2090-something, uh, uh, and then it goes all the way to 2009, and like, <clears throat> you'll notice, I, I think generally we did it year by year, you'll notice that there are some years I grew a lot, right? There's like big gaps in between the lines. And there are other years where the lines are like literally just a couple millimeters separate. And every time I remember going up to that wall, like, like, I wasn't, I wasn't Christian back then, so I wasn't praying, but I was like hoping and wishing, like, please, like, let me grow more. Let me grow more. And then my brother would usually go first, and I'm like, I see how much he grew. I'm like, yeah, that's not, that's nothing. And I'm like, come on, like, let's see this. And then the times that I grew a lot, I'd be like, yes, got him, you know? Like, we would, like, I grew a lot. And of course, you know, growth spurts and stuff, like, those are the times you grow a lot. And then the years that I would grow just a little bit, I'll be, like, so discouraged. Like, oh, no, man, I and my parents were like, you got to sleep more, or you got to eat more. And clearly, I ate a little bit too much when I was a kid. <laughs> and height was really, really important to me. Growing was so important to me. 
just as a natural thing, as a natural aspect of life, we all want to grow. We, we all get excited about growing. And, and some of us, like, now that we're in our like, late teens or early 20s, we're like, please, Lord, I want to still grow a little bit more. I, I'm like, but for me, and I'm like, as soon as I hit 18, I stopped growing. And I was just like, I'm, get started, I'm not going to grow anymore. So what's the point? But the sad part is, for many of us, not only have we given up on our physical growth, and the only hope that you now have is for horizontal growth, right? That's what happens. And life, as you get older, is no longer vertical. It becomes horizontal. Those of you who become fathers, you will know what sympathy weight means. <laughs> if you don't know what it means, just ask one of the covenant fathers, all right? What happens is that just as hopeless or complacent we get about our physical growth, we end up getting complacent with our spiritual growth. Just think about it for a moment. I mean, if you just became Christian, you're super excited to grow, praise the Lord. But I'm speaking to some of us that have been Christian for some time, for some number of years, and you remember how excited you were to get to know God and to know Jesus Christ and to read your Bible when you first became Christian. And now think about your excitement, your desire, your anticipation of what it means to grow as a Christian now, and you compare it to that. And you ask yourself, what happened? What happened to that excitement? What happened to that desire? What happened to that newness of, of like, this is something that I, I really want to aspire to, I want to strive for, I want to become a mature Christian. And that's the sad part. It's somewhere along the way that we no longer have the same desire to grow that we used to. And we get complacent, we get lazy, and we stop growing. And proverbially, what happens is that we end up making the same mark over and over every single year. You go up to your spiritual wall, you make that mark, you say 2019, COVID happened, so I'll give myself a pass. I didn't grow much, but it's because of COVID. 2020, well, COVID again, so let me, I'll give myself, 2021, uh, uh, same thing, but I'll give myself a pass because it was COVID. 2022, COVID is slightly ending, but it's okay. Same thing, uh, I'll give myself a pass. But somewhere along the line, you can't keep giving yourself a pass. Somewhere along the line, you have to realize that staying neutral is not actually neutral at all. What does Jesus say about a tree and its fruit? You will know a tree by its fruit. If it's good fruit, then it must be a good tree. But if it's bad fruit, then it must be a bad tree. And what you're growing in, we're all going to grow. <laughs> I mean, I kind of made a joke. You're either going to grow vertically or horizontally. We're all growing in some way, shape, or form. And the question is, how are you growing? In what way are you growing and maturing? And so if there's something that I want us to remember from today is that my growth is the sum of my godly character and gospel lifestyle. I, I, I'm saying this not just for me, but for all of us, because this is us. I want us to say this together. So let's say it together. Ready? One, two, three. My growth is the sum of my godly character and my gospel lifestyle. That's what your growth entails. We're going to unpack this in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 to 6. Uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 11, all the way through chapter 6, verse 3. I'm going to give us two points for today. And I'm going to put in the form of a question because these are two questions that you can ask yourself in order to take inventory of your spiritual growth. The first question is, what distinguishes your character? What distinguishes your character? Let's read together in Hebrews 5, verse 11 to 14. This is what it says. About this, 
we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The question is, as we, as we think of this whole topic of what distinguishes your character, the first thing that we have to ask is, what does maturity really look like? And it's really interesting that the author of Hebrews, and some people think it's Paul, other people uh, say it could have been someone else, but just for the sake, I'll just mention him as the author for this message, is what is the book of Hebrews about? Those of you who have been part of our church, we did a whole sermon series on Hebrews. Hebrews is all about the, 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 the glory, the, the supremacy of Jesus. How Jesus is literally better than everything else. So Hebrews 1, 2, 3, 4, and half of 5, he's talking about how Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than people. Jesus is better than the priests. Jesus is this awesome person. And then somehow in verse 11, he somehow completely just stops and shifts gears and, and then starts talking directly to the church or the people that he's writing to. He's writing to Jews. That's why it's called Hebrews. And when he writes to the Jews, he, like, it's, it's interesting. Like, oftentimes you, you expect when someone, like, calls you out, you do, I don't know if you ever heard of the hamburger method. Like, when you give feedback to other, like, roommates right, or colleagues, or hamburger method, like, say something nice first and then give them me, like then say the critical thing and then finish out with something encouraging, right? Like there's no hamburger method for this author, but he just goes straight into it. And I think the reason why is he's saying, there's something wrong. There's something I wanna speak to you directly about. And he starts with what maturity doesn't look like. We have to see in verse 11, he uses this phrase and what he says, he says, and he's talking about the church, he says, you are dull of hearing. Now, he's not talking about literally, like you need, uh, you need an earpiece or something like that. He's saying, you are not learning. You are not proactive. I want to read it in a couple other versions. In the Holman uh, Christian Standard Bible, it says, too lazy to understand. You're too lazy to understand. You're not motivated. You're not desiring of this growth. In the Amplified Version, it says, dull and sluggish in your spiritual hearing and disinclined to listen. Like not even neutral, you're negative. You're disinclined. You you become dull in your attitude toward what Christ is trying to teach you. In the New Living Translation, it says, spiritually dull and doesn't seem to listen. He just goes right into it. It's just like, man, Paul, or not Paul, this author, he's so harsh. But what is he trying to say? He's saying, you are not desiring to grow. And, and that has to be probably the basic, the first thing that if you're going to grow, you have to have. You have to have a desire. If you don't have a desire, then there's no way you're going to grow. Like, I don't know how many of you have heard that exercise is good for you. How many of you have heard exercise is good for you? Okay, only a couple of us. The rest of us plead the fifth. Like, like, sorry, that's an American saying. The rest of us feign ignorance. We pretend we didn't hear it. Like, all of us, we know that exercise is good for us, but how many of us, we do it? 
Okay, out of those people, raise their, one person raised their hand. Why? It's not because you don't know. It's, because, it's not because you don't know the benefits. It's not because you, people haven't told you. It's because you lack a desire. You lack a conviction. You lack a humility to realize, hey, maybe actually my lifestyle and, and the way that I'm eating, the way that I'm living my life is actually going to kill me in the long run. And you know what ends up getting people serious about their eating habits and their exercise? When they have a heart attack or when they get a stroke. And, and that's, that's the problem with human, <laughs> human nature, right? Like we won't believe something and we won't have that desire until something crazy happens. But does always something crazy have to happen before we have the desire? I hope not. I hope that doesn't have to happen. Let's be proactive, not dull of hearing. Not proud thinking that we are good enough or we've made it, but have this desire to say, God, I want to grow. And he continues on. He says in verse 12, you ought to be teachers. In the New Living Translation, I, mean, I, I, I don't know, I like the New Living Translation. He's just direct. He just speaks the truth. He says, you have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. You've been here for so long. You've been part of this church. You've been part of the customs. You've been in community for so long. You know these things. You ought to be teaching others. And, and many of us, we know that the, there's the axiom, especially students, that you know something well when you're able to teach someone else. We've, many of us, we've heard that before. So in order to teach someone else to know that you've known it, then you have to have some level of self-learning to be able to get there. You can't be like, hey, I know this guy. I haven't studied at all. I never went to the lectures. I never went to class. I didn't read the book. I could teach you. That person would be like, huh? Who do you think you are? You're going to waste my time. No one's going to want to learn from you. But if you said, oh, yeah, I went to class every single time, which is probably 1% of the people here in this room. No, I'm just kidding. You're all diligent students going to class, acing your finals, and doing really well right now. Praise the Lord. I studied the book. I went to office hours. I learned from my TAs. I did all this self-feeding, self-learning, and now I could teach you. And then I think then you have some credibility. Now the question is, are we self-feeders for our own spiritual lives? What is a self-feeder? Self-feeder is someone who takes their own personal growth seriously and isn't codependent or fully dependent on someone else for their relationship with God. What do, I, what do I mean by that? And I was like, okay, how, how can I explain this in a better way? I'm like, well, use children, for example. And as a new father, I have firsthand experience with this. When, when your child is an infant, when Noah was an infant, and when, when I'm talking about infant, I mean, he, I, technically I think he's still an infant, like almost 10 months old, but he's still a baby. But when he was like one to four months old, like they can't do anything for themselves. Like, they're literally a blob. Like, literally. Like, and, and they're a blob that just happens to consume milk and poop and breathe and cry and sleep. Like, that's all they do, literally, 24-7. And you're like a slave to this blob. Like, seriously, you know. Another word for parents, new parents, is blob slave, all right? So just wait until you get to that level. But somewhere along the line, as they mature, as they grow, and it's just, it's just like, it's super cool. I can't wait for you to be parents. Super cool. You see the baby like start to grow and to mature. And it's not like you did anything, right? You just inputted milk and then they outputted stuff and you threw that in the trash. And 
like somehow their muscles start to grow stronger. Somehow their senses and their eyesight and their dexterity, their, their ability to use their hands and fingers, it starts to grow. And then they start to be able to respond and do things for themselves. And one of the first things they learn to do for themselves is they start to learn to feed themselves. That's one of the first things that before they learn to crawl, like all the things that parents get, you know, you think that parents get excited about, like you think that parents get excited about them talking or walking or crawling. I mean, yes, we do, and that comes later. But one of my favorite things that Noah did first was feeding himself. Like, because when he feeds himself, especially with a bottle, you can give him the bottle, and he'll hold it himself. There's a photo here right here of him holding the bottle, right? And then, super cute, right? Like, and then, and then you can leave him, and you can take care of other stuff. It's great, and he's happy. It's a win-win. And, like, literally, Eric and I's favorite thing to do right now is give him the bottle, say, you go drink yourself, and then we'll take care of other stuff. And it's awesome to cool and see them feeding themselves. And it's not just with milk. Not only does he feed himself with a bottle, but now he's able to feed himself with solid food. Because we've been starting to give him solid food since around six months. You don't have to turn off the lights, but I want to show this 20-second video of him eating solid foods. It's interesting. And, and that's just one example. And he would do that time after time. And he was so excited to do that. Like, he, want, like he didn't want us to. I mean, he, he, still, he doesn't mind us feeding it to him. But there are times where he like wants to grab stuff on his own. He's constantly learning. And as, as a new baby, like they're just exploring the world. They're wanting to touch everything. And they're wanting to grow. They're wanting to feed themselves. And, and I haven't got to this point yet, but I heard that when they become toddlers, two or three, like they won't let you do stuff for them. They're like, no, I want to do this for myself. And they're like, oh, no, I'm not, I'm not ready for that. <laughs> Why am I sharing about Noah? Because he's cute, but also. <laughs> My question is, do we have, like, this is a baby, all right? This is, a, this is an infant. And I don't want to compare us to infants, right, in a derogatory way. But I want to challenge us with how many of us are learning to feed ourselves in a spiritual way with the Word of God and in our personal relationship with Him. Compared to how many of us are so dependent on someone else feeding us like an infant, I was tempted to put my face on top of Noah, right? Like, you know, that would be so bad, right? Like, just but imagine yourself as an infant, someone else holding the bottle for you. It's embarrassing. And not to guilt or shame us, but there's something natural. But we should, as we grow to maturity, eventually learn to feed ourselves. That doesn't mean we don't have community. That doesn't mean we don't have accountability. But there's got to be some kind of ownership because we are not going to be infants forever, you know what it's like to know some of those people. You're, 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 you know there are people at your parents' age who are like at a certain age, but then they act like children. You know what that's like, but we ought not to be like that. So are we feeding ourselves, learning to feed ourselves, learning, learning to drink milk for ourselves, learning to eat for ourselves in a spiritual way that we will grow to maturity? Let me, let me make it a little bit more practical. Many of us here and please forgive my directness, many of us are, are here are consumers. And I will almost make consumers synonymous with people who are not self-feeding. You're infants. And the reason why you're infants is because you're consumers. And the reason why you're a consumer is because you're infants. And it is the cycle. Because you think that in order to grow, you've got to consume more. But what you actually need is you need to be able to self-feed and then give more. 
and teach and share with people more. But you're like, oh, Pastor Bob, I'm not ready. Well, who's going to be ready? When are you ready to get married? No one knows. At some point, you have to make a decision to say, I'm taking responsibility for my life, and I'm at a point where I could take responsibility for someone else's life and make that decision and make it. When are you ready to start feeding yourself? You are. You have to make a decision, take a responsibility, and say, I'm ready, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to take responsibility for it. And some of us, we come every Sunday, we come to life, we're part of community, and we sit there and receive, and we wonder why we're not growing. And I want to, I have a special place in my heart for the single adults in this church. I love you guys. And that's why I want to speak honestly with us. Is that the single adult life stage, in my experience, and this is just my opinion, you can disagree with me if you don't, you, if you don't agree. But for me, I really feel like the single adult life stage is the most consumer-driven life stage there is of all life stages. Minus an infant, sure, the infant is the most consumer person, right? Because they just sit there as a blob. But the single adult life stage is one of the most consumer-driven mindset. Why? Because when you're a student, yes, you're, you're kind of tied to a schedule. You, got to, you committed to university. Your parents paid for it, or you got a scholarship for something. You got to do it. And so there is some, like, you got to do it for something else, for someone else, in order to get somewhere. But when you're a single adult, once you get a job, what happens? You do everything for yourself. What does society tell you? Make more money for what? For yourself, to have a more comfortable life. What does society tell you? You've got to find that other person for what? For yourself. Who's that other person you're going to spend the rest of your life with? What does society tell you? You've got to up your career. Why? So that you can advance for what? Yourself. What does society tell you? You've got to travel. Why? So you can explore the world for yourself. Single life is one of the most consumer-driven life stages. And if we buy into that, then we're going to be infants we're going to be consumers, never growing up spiritually. And we come to church expecting everyone to just pour something into us so that we can just maintain our spiritual life when we should be the ones growing and teaching others. So those of you single adults, I mean, I love you, but for some of you, how long have you been part of our church? And yet you are not investing into someone else. There's college students who need the wisdom that you have because they're graduating. They're trying to figure out life. They're going through an internship. I was talking to someone who was recently starting their internship. They're like, oh my God, I've only been working for three days and I'm dying. What kind of wisdom can you share? Can you teach them that you've learned through the things that you've been through so that someone else can glean from what you've experienced? And it's not just single adults. I mean, family, I bless our hearts. Our fam- I'm so thankful for our families because there is a heart. Every time we have the opportunity to mingle, I'm, I'm seeing our family saying, hey, like single adult brother or sister, like let me invite you over. Let me invite you over. Let me pour into you. Those are the kind of things that we want to see more of. And let's pray for more families in our church. Amen. We want to see more of that. So some of you need to get married and have kids sooner than, than later. We've got to pray for mature men in our church. Amen. There we go, brothers. But that means you got to be a self-feeder. Are you a self-feeder? And can someone else trust you that you're a self-feeder so that they can follow you? Sorry, I just went a little bit longer, but I just felt like we have to grow. we got to grow. And if we're not desiring to grow, then we have no credibility to be able to say that we're mature. So that's what maturity doesn't look like, but 
he also continues on and he talks about what maturity looks like. So here's where the author calls the church, you're infants. You need milk, not solid food. And it's not a good thing. And he's saying, okay, I concede and you know, you're not mature because I can't give you solid food. So you're going to get milk. And it's very interesting that in some translations it says child and other translations it says infants. And the curious thing about infants is that you're like, what does an infant really look like spiritually? If, if that's what is not good, which is not being desirous or not self-feeding or not taking ownership of your faith, then what actually is it? And he uses this idea of infants. And if you look at some of Paul's letters, he actually gives you a description of what infancy looks like in terms of maturity. And if we look at what infancy looks like in maturity, then we can see what maturity actually looks like later on. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 to 3. This is what Paul says. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as... Now let's say it again. As infants in Christ. Let's read it together in yellow. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So infancy here, he's saying, if you are an infant, you are what? People of the flesh, you're not ready, you're still of the flesh, and there is jealousy and strife among you. So if you're an infant, then there are these things that are part of your attitude or your relationships that are problematic that makes you infants. Okay, so let's look at another passage from Peter. Not just Paul. <clears throat> this is scriptural, but from Peter. 1 Peter 2.2. 2. So put away all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. What does he say? Because you're an infant, you haven't put away what? Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. But because you are infants, you haven't put those away. But in order to grow up from being infants, you need to what? Put those things away. So what is scripture saying about what maturity actually is? So if you're an infant and you have all these things, the maturity is what? The absence of these things. To grow up from these things. And these things is not more knowledge. It's not all these other, like more head knowledge or more theology. What he's saying is maturity to grow up from infancy is your character, is your attitude. It's what distinguishes your character. Does your character reflect the character of Christ? That's what maturity is. He says we are trained to distinguish good from evil. This is where Titus 2, 11 to 13 says, for the, character, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What does he say? Training us to renounce, the same word, he's trained to distinguish good from evil. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. It's about character. He's saying if you're trained, you're renouncing ungodliness, envy, slander, dissensions, all that all hypocrisy, malice, deceit, all the other stuff, and you're living what? self-controlled, upright, godly lives. Lives of righteousness. Lives that are upright, that are good. That communicate love. That communicate things that are true. Uh, let me give you one more reference to reinforce this point. And you're like, oh, it's just a New Testament thing. It was the Old Testament too. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. This is God talking to Samuel when he's trying to pick a king. And he's looking through all of Jesse's sons. For the Lord sees, not as man sees, the man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the what? The heart. 
He looks on the heart. And what is the character of some of? It's the sum of the affections of your heart. What do you care about? It's expressed from your heart into your character and, and into your relationships, your interactions, everything else. Maturity is about your character. Maturity is about growing continuously in your character, in your attitude. And if your character and attitude is not like Christ, then you are immature. But if your character and attitude is like Christ, then you are mature. And the question for us as we do a growth inventory is what distinguishes our character? Is your character distinguished by traits that are like Christ? Or is it distinguished by things that are just like every, every other person in the world? Do you, when, when something happens, when something fails, when, when something like doesn't go the way that you want it to, what's your response? Are you just like everyone else in the world? You get anxious, you get worried, you get stressed, your temper is shorter, you're less gracious to people, you're less loving to people, you get more self-focused, you become a hermit, you avoid. Like how many of you students, don't raise your hands, but how many, when it comes to exam season, you don't want to talk to anyone. You don't want to help anyone. And then single working adults, I mean, I understand OT is crazy in Hong Kong. But, I mean, how many people in, in Hong Kong OT? Almost everyone. So is the logic, therefore, because I'm in OT, therefore I can never love and help and support someone? But if you're in that situation, but instead you respond with love, you respond with grace, you respond with hope, with peace, then those are good signs that you are maturing in your character. And it's not about perfection. I want to read this quote from Martin Luther. It's nothing about perfection. Jesus, yes, he says, be perfect as, my, as, my, as your heavenly Father is perfect. But what he's saying is he's growing in that. The process that you're going to go through all throughout your life until you become like Christ with him in heaven to the day that you die. He says this, Martin Luther, this life, therefore, is not righteousness but growth in righteousness, not heal, health, but healing, not being, but becoming, not rest, but exercise. We are not what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. Our character, what, what someone who is mature is not a perfect character who is perfect in every sense, but it is a growth process into that direction. And so some of us, hopefully, it's an, it's an encouragement. Say, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm growing in that. But the question is, you have to ask yourself, is it, am I growing in that? And I want to just clarify some misconceptions about spiritual maturity, because even though you might be like, okay, Pastor, I, I, I think I agree with, you know, it's character, but isn't it all this other stuff? Like, isn't it, isn't it more about knowledge? Don't you have to understand more theology and more doctrine and know your Bible more? I mean, those are all good things. But how many of you know that there are people who know the Bible really, really well, but their character is terrible? Like, they could pull out way more scripture verses and references than you could ever. They more, know more doctrine. They know more, like, theology than you will ever know. But their character is no more than any of your character. Are they more mature than you? I would say not so. Do you need theology and doctrine? Yes, you do. But you cannot have knowledge without character. Some of us, we think that maturity is about age. I mentioned this before. How many of your, don't raise your hand, how many of your parents are just as immature as you are? 
I mean, some of you might be judgmental, right? And some of your parents might be here, so that's a touchy subject to talk about, <laughs> all right? I was talking about Noah, right? Not... <laughs> but you know, some of you, you know, like, I mean, no parent is perfect. No parent is perfect. And, you know, as, as a parent now, I'm like, man, I got to grow because if I don't grow, then my issues are going to affect my child. But not all of our parents grew up in a Christian home. Not all of our parents grew up in a church that emphasized growth and developing and character and all this kind of stuff. And you know that many of our parents struggle with a lot of character things that affect you. So age is not necessarily a marker of maturity. Attendance. Some of us, we think that we are more holy the more church stuff we go to. I don't know where you got that. I mean, if, if Pastor Seth or I have ever indirectly like, insinuated that, we apologize because that is not our heart. Your maturity, your relationship with Christ has nothing to do with your physical number of attendance. Some of us are like, oh, I went to every single life group, I went to every single gathering, and I went to every single Sunday celebration, and look at me, I am a wonderful man or woman. Yes, being part of things can help you to mature, but what if your motive for coming to things is to show how awesome you are, and it fuels your pride? Now, please, don't take it the wrong way. I'm not saying don't come, don't, don't participate, right? I still want to encourage you to come because there's so many things you can experience and so many ways you can give because it's in community that you learn to teach others. If you're alone by yourself, a hermit, then you're not, then you're not teaching others, then you're not going to grow. So still, I want to encourage you to come. But do not equate attendance with maturity. And some of us, we do that. Not consciously, but subconsciously. And we judge other people that we're like, oh, where is that person today? Don't ever do that. Now, if your brother or sister is missing, yes, you are your brother or sister's keeper, and you should encourage them, you should love on them, you should pray for them, you should talk with them, encourage them to be part of community, ask what's going on in their lives, help them out. But don't judge them. It has nothing to do with their spiritual maturity. Fourth thing, title or position. Spiritual maturity has nothing to do with your title or position. Some of you have certain roles, certain aspects of your life. You're like, oh, because of this, then I am secure because that means I'm mature. It has nothing to do with your maturity. And sad part to say, and this is something that Pastor Seth and I, we have to always check ourselves. There's a lot of pastors that are very spiritually immature in this world, in Christendom, in the churches, not only in Hong Kong, but all over the world. There are a lot of pastors, a lot of leaders who are very immature, not just faith-wise, because they might be like knowledgeable because they went to seminary did all this kind of stuff, but their character is really poor. It has nothing to do with the role or title that you play, whether you have a role or title or whether you don't have a role or title. Some of us go the opposite side because, oh, I don't have a role and title, therefore I can't grow in maturity and I can't teach others, I can't disciple other people. That is the biggest fallacy in the world. No, you should be discipling other people. If you think that only people who have roles and titles are spiritually mature and can disciple other people, then what, are you, what Bible are you reading? What does he say in Matthew 28? He says, go make disciples of all nations. Is he talking to only the leaders of the church? No. He's talking to all of his disciples. That's his commission to all people for all time, for every Christian in the rest of the world for all eternity. We're all called to make disciples has nothing to do with what your role or your title is. 
And last thing I wanted to say is it's nothing, it has nothing to do with the results that you create. Sometimes we think that we do Christian things better than other people. We're more faithful with our soap than other people. We serve more than other people. The people we spend time with, they end up coming more than other people. It has nothing to do with your results. And if that's you, then you, should, you have such a works-oriented mindset that I want to encourage you, come to the gospel of grace where it has nothing to do about you. And it is God working in you by the grace of God in the midst of all of our issues, your issues, my issues, that people are able to grow. And let's focus on what our character is because what distinguishes our character is what helps us to see that we grow in maturity. I want to just give us, and you're probably like, okay, Pastor Paul, I still don't know. Make it, uh, let me make it as concrete as possible and we'll move on to the next point. Galatians 5, 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there are no law. If you want to know what it means to grow in character and spiritual maturity, then grow in those things. Grow in love. Grow in joy. Peace, patience, kindness. Let's say it together. Ready? One, two, three. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Grow in those things. And if you grow in those things and those things are being exhibited from your life, I would say there's a very high probability that you are spiritually mature. You're growing your spiritual maturity. It's what distinguishes your character that's important for your growth inventory. So the first question was, what distinguishes your character? The second question is, what is distinctive about your lifestyle? What is distinctive about your lifestyle? We're going to read the last three verses, Hebrews 6, 1 to 3. It says, Therefore... Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. What is distinctive about your lifestyle? Here, the author starts talking about these different doctrines or these different beliefs that he says, let's not relay a new foundation. And I think that, that, that phrase is really key because he says he doesn't say, let's not lay a foundation, period. He says, not lay again a foundation. How many we know foundations are important? And we talk about how your spiritual foundation is very, very important. If your foundation is built on anything other than Jesus Christ, then you have a faulty foundation. And you need to lay a proper foundation. But the problem is, some of us, we're laying the foundation over and over and over again. And we never go beyond it. How many of us, we, uh, we love the new Shotton Central MTR line? Praise the Lord. It's like awesome, especially New Territories people. You can get to like Admiralty and Central much, much quicker than you used to. Uh, how much time does it save? I, I still haven't been there yet, but I'm excited to take it one day. I don't know how many times they had to relay the foundation. Like any project like that, it's always played with delays, right? You're like, oh my God, what's taking so long? It's because they're laying the foundation, they find some problems. I think at the Togo Wan station, they discovered some like ancient, like, you know, pottery and artifact. You're like, oh shoot, we gotta change things around. And how does it make you feel as a consumer, as, as a citizen, or as a, part, a partaker of the MTR? And you pay fares, and somehow every season they hike up the fares, and you're like, what's taking them so long? 
And you're like, why are they laying the foundation over and over again? And you have to ask, what's the purpose of a foundation? It's not just, because you imagine if they're just laying the foundation over again and the train never gets built, what are you going to do? You're going to be frustrated. You have to ask, what's the purpose of a foundation? It's to build something on top of it. It's to, to, to express something, to show something. If you use the analogy of a building, the foundation is there to keep it building up. It's not to exist for itself, but it's so that you can build something on top of it. And that thing on top of it is the important part. The foundation is there so the important thing can be built. It can be expressed. And what does a building represent? Uh, architecture students, buildings have a lot of meaning. Amen? Okay. <laughs> we got a little bit of delay. I think the architecture, they're in final season right now and they're tired. They're burnt out from all their projects. And I'm just amazed whenever you look at a building, there's so much more to that building than what you just see initially. Like there's a whole philosophy, there's a whole design concept behind that building for why the architect built it that way. And not just the architect, but whoever commissioned the building, the country or the city or, or the company, has a very clear purpose for that. Uh, something that they want to communicate, something that want, they want to express about them that comes out of the building. How many of you here are from Taiwan? All right. Some Taiwanese brothers and sisters. I, I thought it was so cool. I was, I was looking up some skyscrapers and looking at like what are, the, what are the deeper design meanings behind some of these buildings and what is it that they wanted to express? So we have a photo of some skyscrapers in this area. So Taiwan brothers and sisters, Taipei 101. Does anyone know what 101 stands for? Not even Taiwanese brothers know. It stands for January 1st, the start of a new year. And what they did was they designed the building to look like a bamboo and different stages. Oh, you didn't know that. And you look at skyscrapers are totally different. And, and you're Taiwanese. You didn't even know this. It was designed to resemble a bamboo, and it was a collaboration of tradition and advancement in technology. They wanted to fuse that. And the reason why it was January 1st is you know that they, they shoot out fireworks from the building every new year. I'm like, whoa, I didn't know that. So the Taiwanese people, they built it to represent the Taiwanese culture as a mix of tradition and modern advancement. Uh, we got some Malaysians here. All right. I know there's a bigger building than Petronas Towers now. I think it's supposed to be done this year. I don't know if it's finished or not. But these are the, these are the previous tall buildings, the twin Petronas Towers. Do, do you guys know what, what this represented? I, I'm not sure if you Malaysians know. Each of these floors, if you notice, there's a spiral like geometry to these towers. Uh, what's the predominant religion in Malaysia? Islam. Do these look familiar to anything in Islam? They're supposed to represent the minarets of a mosque. It's an expression of their faith, of their religion, in the buildings that they have built. Also, the, the two towers are linked at the 41st floor to in, evoke a dramatic entrance to the city like a gate. They want to welcome people. They're open. Yes, they're Islamic, but they're, I think generally Malaysia tends to be a little bit more moderate. They want to welcome people in. They want to encourage people to come as a gateway to the city. Uh, we got some uh, people from uh, mainland, Shanghai. All right. 
We got the Shanghai Tower. It is, uh, I think, the, one of the tallest towers now uh, in the world. And uh, the Shanghai Tower, it represents China's boundless future, a symbol of a nation whose future is filled with limitless opportunities. Uh, one thing that's really cool is they, th the reason why they, they took it as limitless opportunities is because you know, any urban setting is very packed. So they, they designed this tower to maximize vertical space to take the city and take the horizontal streets of the city and build it up vertically. And it's very cool, every so many floors, they have like a park, like a literal park, outdoor park that you can actually be and like enjoy the city while you're there as, as a future vision of what urban and vertical uh, skyscrapers can actually look like and to inhabit it to make a sustainable vision for the future in an urban setting. It's like really cool to see the, 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 the vision or the, the hope or the culture that they're trying to communicate through these skyscrapers. Two more. We got some Koreans here. All right. All right. Hey. Wah. Instead of whoa. Wah. Latte Tower. It's a little bit older, but it's really cool. This building looks really interesting. Does, does anyone know why this building looks this way? Do you know why? Okay. It's meant to represent the artistry of ancient Korean ceramics. It looks like a ceramic piece, calligraphy and porcelain. Its curvature is sleek and imposing. And you know that Koreans are obsessed with like perfection in many ways, or like that, that, that idealism. They're very passionate people. I know, because I'm married to one of them. <laughs> right? And they're expressing that through this beautiful building. It's, it's incredible how you see different cultures expressing their values, their beliefs, through the expressions of their buildings that they build upon these foundations. Last one, I, got, I have to put Hong Kong, amen? I'll put it here, ICC, our tallest building in Hong Kong. Anyone know why ICC is built the way that it is? Where is ICC? What region of Hong Kong is ICC in? Kowloon, what does Kowloon mean in Cantonese or Chinese? Dragon. What does that tail of the building look like? It looks like a dragon's tail. I don't know if you ever knew that. Whoa. And some of you work in ICC. Isn't it so amazing how every culture, every city, every country, they have a foundation. And yes, the foundation is very important, but what they build on top of it is an expression of their values, their dreams, their aspirations, what they care about. And it communicates something to the world. And they're trying to communicate something by this building, the structure to say, this is what's important to me. You should come and visit and be a part of what we are, who we are and what we do, because this is how we live our lives. And what this author is saying is this foundation is important, yes, but you cannot continue to lay a foundation over and over again. you got to build something. And it's not just building something for the sake of building something, but it's so that you can display who you are. Who you are is in Christ. Who Christ is to the world. And my question is, is your building like that, or are you laying the foundation over and over again? Does your life represent, is your life an expression of Christ? Philippians 2, 14 to 15 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless, innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights 
in the world. Other translations say it as, as you shine as stars in the universe. What are we shining? What kind of lifestyle do we live? Do we live distinctive lifestyles? Are we expressing the very doctrines? Yes, theology, yes, as the foundation of Christ, but it's expressed outward in the day-to-day ways that we live. But if you keep relaying the foundation, saying, okay, I just got to get more knowledge, I got to know this doctrine better, but you never live it out, then you're never going to be able to do that. And you're never going to grow to maturity. In what ways should our lives be distinctive? Paul gives five things. Repentance from acts that lead to death. If some of you know that repentance is a very core. John the Baptist, what did he do? He called people to repentance. He said, repent for the kingdom is near. This is before Jesus Christ came. The second thing, it was instruction about cleansing rites. Some of you might be thinking, oh, baptism, which is partially true. But even before Jesus came and was baptized, they had ceremonial cleansing, ceremonial washing in order to enter the temple because they're unclean in certain ways. Laying on of hands, you might think, oh, that was the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost and people sending out people onto missions. But they also laid on hands for what? Healing and prophecy and all this stuff, even before Jesus came. The resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. It wasn't only Jesus Christ. And then fifth is the eternal judgment. All Jews, and this book was written to Jews, all all Jews believed in eternal judgment at some point, that God would come and judge the whole world. Now, why, why am I talking about before Christ? The reason why is because he's saying what makes you distinctive is not these things. Because many of you might be like, oh, those are, those are pretty Christian things. Like, I could see repentance is a Christian thing. Like, baptism is a Christian thing. Laying on hands, praying for one another, that's a Christian thing. Resurrection of the dead, of course that's Christian, that's Jesus. And eternal judgment, yeah, of course, we, we're escaping eternal judgment because of salvation. But if you read carefully this passage, and if you know the context of Hebrews, all the Jews would have known that these are things that are not distinctly Christian. These are things that were also Jewish. And the reason why he's pulling these things out is because it's not about the content of what you believe. Because a lot of the things that you believe might be exactly the same as what other people believe. But it's about how you live it out. It's about what is distinctive about your lifestyle. How is your lifestyle distinctive or different in the way that you live out the things that you believe? And, And for us, what is it we believe? We believe that Christ is supreme, and we live that out. If we're to give one last illustration, I don't know how many of you uh, when, when uh, you became Christian, those of us who didn't go, grow up in a Christian household, after you became Christian, and I don't know like, what kind of situation you have with your parents about you becoming Christian, if there's conflicts or things like that, but one of the things that I always wanted to aspire to was for my parents to know that I have changed because of my faith. And so when I went home, like, I tried to wash the dishes more. I like, tried to help with the laundry. Like, I tried to pray at meals. Like, I tried to do a lot of stuff that tried to help communicate that, like, I'm Christian now. And after some time, they were like, they noticed something different. They are like, oh, like, what's going on? Like, you don't have to do these things. We'll take care of it. You know, my, my wife was like, you're so spoiled. Your parents do everything for you. I'm like, oh, that's why I'm trying to grow. I'm trying to help out more. But my parents, I was so devastated by this. My parents were like, oh, he's just maturing now. 
he's just he's just growing up finally our little boy is finally growing up and i was like no like ah, that's not it it's jesus it's like jesus why i'm serving why i'm trying to be other centered why i'm not trying to be selfish why i'm trying to not be a spoiled brat but it, it made me think like you can do nice things but not express christ in the way that you live let me say it again you could do nice good things but not express Christ in the way that you live. How many of us, don't raise your hand, how many of us are nice, per, nice people? Some of us are like, oh, I'm not a nice person. But just being a nice person doesn't make you Christian, doesn't make you express Christ. Some of us are nice people for the wrong reasons. And there's a lot of nice people out there in this world. Actually, Mormons are like some of the nicest people in the world. And we believe that they're a cult, that they don't have the proper theology. Just being nice doesn't make you Christian. But my question is, are you so nice to the point where you're willing to love your enemies at your own inconvenience in ways that people are not willing to? That one person in your office that no one wants to talk to, do you go out of your way to love on them, to care for them? That's a little bit different. People will see that. They'll be like, why are you talking to that person? Why are you always coming to that person's defense? when we're gossiping about them. That's a little bit different. Now, some of us might be like, oh, I'm philanthropic. I'm a, I'm a philanthropist. I give, I contribute, I tithe. How many people give money out there that are not Christian? You know many of them. Li Ka-Shing, Run Run Shaw. <laughs> just, students, just name any building on your campus. You got many of them. I mean, some of them may be Christian secretly, you just don't know. But are all of them Christian? I don't necessarily think so. And so you might be like, well, they have a lot of money. Okay, well, ask some of your other colleagues how many of you have ever given to a cause for something. How many people in Hong Kong do you think gave toward the social movement? How many people do you think gave toward Ukraine? They don't have to be Christian to give. Just because you give doesn't make you Christian. But I want to ask you, the way that you give, the sacrifice that you give, the heart that you give, does that make you a little bit distinct than other people? The causes that you give to, does that make you a little bit distinctive? I would say most people give to causes that they are connected to, directly impacted to. But do you give to things that have nothing to do with you, that have no direct benefit for yourself? It's not just corporate social responsibility but a genuine heart and love for the poor, for the marginalized, who don't have a voice, who can't speak up for themselves. And not only giving once to make yourself feel better, but giving consistently. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about your time and your talents. How many of us we say, I work hard? Okay, how many of us we know so many people who are not Christian in Hong Kong work hard? Or sometimes they don't really work hard. They just work long hours, but they don't really work hard. But they look like they're working hard. But how many of you are willing to work hard for a boss that you don't like? Oof. That's hard. But what distinguishes you? What is distinctive about your life, the way that you work, that will cause people to realize, oh, well, there's something really different about you. And it will cause them to ask you, why do you do that? It doesn't make sense. 
Is there anything different than in your life? I want to just wrap up with this quote in this last verse. Max Lucado, he said, A Christian in his surroundings should encourage everyone to be better instead of being the one who stoops to be like everyone else. I think that's so true. When, when people see that you're different, but in a good way, it's going to cause them to question and ask, but it's going to inspire them. And what better way to share our faith, not only in word, yes, word should be part of it, like your faith should be declared verbally, you should have conversations, but in order to get that conversation, have some credibility to say what you want to say, do people see you, see the life that you're living, and be like, I want to live a life like that. I want something that you have because what I'm doing and the way I'm living, I'm not seeing that. And the question is, how can we actually do this? And of course, the author leaves at the end of the line, he says, if God permits us to do so. Such a purposeful message or last line that he adds in there. I want to encourage us with this last verse, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6 to 7. Because it is only God who can allow us to develop a distinguishable character and to live a dis- distinctive lifestyle. It is only God who can help us to grow. This is Paul speaking. He says, I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he nor who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. What is the main thing? That if we want to aspire to have a good, healthy growth inventory, then we have to know that, yes, it's a, 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 what distinguishes our character, and it's what is distinctive about our lifestyle. And yes, we need to have the desire. we got to be self-aware to grow in these areas. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it is, it is God who provides the growth. You cannot grow on your, on your own. It should drive us more and more to the feet of the cross, to Jesus to say, God, I need you. My hope in this inventory that you do is you realize my character is not like Christ. I can't do this by myself. Lord, help me. Lord, work in me. Holy Spirit, do something in my life so that my character can become more like you, so that I can love like you, that I can have joy like you, so that I can be gentle like you, so I can have peace like you. And it should drive us when we realize my lifestyle looks just like everyone else in the world. Maybe slightly different because I just tend to do a little bit more Christian stuff and I use a little bit more Christian lingo. And I have a little bit more Christian friends. But aside from that, my life looks just the same. So Lord, help me. Help me to live differently. Help me to live distinctively for you more than anyone else. And I believe that when we come to God like that, man, he is going to be so pleased to answer our prayers. He's going to be so delighted that his children are coming to him, pleading with him. And he's going to be reminding us, saying, my grace is sufficient for you. For what? My power is made perfect in your weakness. And therefore, what? We ought to boast all the more gladly so that the power of Christ can rest on us. That's how we're going to grow. Amen? That's why the one thing is my growth is the sum of my godly character and my gospel lifestyle. There are just a couple of next steps I can give you. Is The first is take an inventory of your spiritual growth. Just ask yourself those two questions. What distinguishes your character? And then what is distinctive about your lifestyle? Just think through it. Spend some time on your own this week just writing some things down, like what are the character things in my life that people have brought up to me or that I'm realizing about myself, and how is it not like Christ? And then look at your lifestyle. How do I live out my life? Is it just like what other people do in this world? 
Or is there something about the way that I live that people are asking me, like, why do you live that way? And it's pretty easy to answer. Like, if no one has asked you, you're probably not living a distinctive lifestyle. And then use that as your evaluation. And number two is to trust God with your growth. Like, say, I can't do this. This is where you have to come to God in prayer. You come to God and you ask Him for help. We can't grow on our own. It is God who gives the growth. And lastly, is to tell an accountability partner how they can help you grow in this next season. We need one another. God doesn't just do things, you know, kind of in a weird, ether kind of way. He uses people. As you're realizing some of these things, as you're praying, you're saying, God, I need help, and you tell someone else, you tell an accountability partner, you tell a close friend, a brother or sister, you say, hey, these are the things I need help with. Can you help me? They're going to be there to remind you. They're going to be there to bring awareness to you when you're unaware. And we want to develop these healthy accountability relationships in our church so that we can all grow to maturity. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.